Manuscript Academy podcast, episode number 11, A Conversation with Melissa Edwards. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Melissa, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I am a literary agent at Stone's Dog. I've been at Stone's Dog for four months. I was at the Aaron Priest Agency before that. And actually, before I got into publishing, I was an attorney. And I really enjoy the representation aspect of being a literary agent. It kind of mixes my dual interests of being a lawyer who is an advocate for clients and also my passion for books and finding new talent and representing authors so that they get great deals with publishers and make beautiful products, make beautiful books so we can all read them. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to switch from the law field to the literary one? It was, how do I put this? It was an interesting transition because I really knew very little about being a literary agent when I switched. It kind of came together in a kismet, beshert, destiny sort of way. I wrote an email to Lisa Erbach Vance of the Aaron Priest Agency, who's Harlan Coben's agent, telling her that I thought her job was really interesting and that I was a huge Harlan fan. And somehow they needed an assistant. So I got hired as the assistant at the Aaron Priest Agency, and I knew so little about what a literary agent did. I thought it sounded cool, but I knew nothing about it. And it took me a couple of years of straight assisting and then also running the foreign rights for the agency to learn what being a literary agent actually entailed. And so I I thought I knew, and then I found out that I really knew very little. And then when I left the Aaron Priest Agency, I found out that there's a whole other way to look at the representation of books and authors, that every agency is a little bit different or a lot of bit different. And there's a lot to learn in how people represent authors and how people look at the book business. And that's what's so exciting about this career. There's always a different perspective. Say you're an author with a contract from a small press and you go to a lawyer to work out that contract for you. What we've hear, heard in the industry is that book contracts are so different from other contracts. Um, you need someone who really specializes in that area. Do you have that experience or is it the sort of thing where it just kind of made sense? Book contracts are really specific and there is boilerplate language that's very normal in publishing that is maybe a little bit atypical outside of the industry. And what come what happens sometimes is attorneys try to fight the wrong battles in book contracts. So if they're just great transactional attorneys, they're going to see language in a book contract that they're not going to recognize necessarily. So they're going to want to fight it because that's the way attorneys think. <laughs> but... A literary agent would say, that's in literally every contract. There are other things in that contract that you should be fighting. There's other language that you can change. Don't fight that battle. But a lawyer who doesn't work in publishing wouldn't know that. So it's really understanding which parts of the contract are unusual and which parts of the contract are so par for the course that it would be ridiculous to try and change them. And of course, that takes time. That's not something that you just, you know, can look up in a book somewhere. Exactly. It's an experience thing. And learning from your elders and learning from the people who've seen it all and who saw the boilerplate change over the past 20 or 30 or 40 years 
it's talking to those people so that you understand how publishing contracts have changed over time. And also just understanding the process, too. I remember the first time I was negotiating a contract and pretty much got back a list of like, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. No, no, no. And I was horrified. My boss was like, no, no, no. Here's what you do. You just suggest this other thing that's basically the same thing you wanted in different language. And weirdly, that worked in a lot of cases. (laughs) That's brilliant. It sounds good to me. I I don't even know why. It's really weird. Sometimes I feel like contracts people on the publishing side just want to get in a quota of no. And um, there have been times when I've just suggested like different versions of things that could work for all of us. And weirdly enough, a lot of them have gotten through. Even now, when I've been doing this for a little while and I feel pretty comfortable with publishing contracts, my list of things to a, to a contracts person usually gets a lot of no's. But there are things that I'm, ha- I'm fine with a no on where I kind of expected them to say no. And that's just okay. I would have liked to have gotten it, but I'm okay with not getting it. And then there are things on that list that are really pivotal that those are the times to dig in your heels. And it's only through experience that you can differentiate between the, okay, I guess that's not such a big deal versus the, we have to get this right now. Yeah, definitely. Julie, how are you doing over there? Author perspective. I'm, doing, I'm amazed first how, um, how, many, how many agents also have experience with law. That's been a common thread with our podcast, which um, makes me wonder, you know, the, you know, the brain of the agent and the brain of the lawyer are so similar. It's just, I was just pondering it as we were sitting here. Really interesting. I'm kind of interested, Melissa, about what you do when you're not working. Like, what, what is your passion if, if there was no publishing and no law? Oh, boy. If there was no publishing and there was no law, I would work in podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I love comedy podcasts. I love scripted podcasts. I love podcasts that teach me things. I am a podcast junkie. And I think probably the fact that I do work in books means that sometimes I need a little time away from books. If you had said that to me five years ago, I would have thought that was hysterical since books have been my escape since I was a child. But now that we work in them, sometimes it's time to to step away. And thankfully, podcasts have filled that void for me. I've been listening to the Gimlet podcast, Homecoming, and it's scripted and it's incredibly good. Highly recommend. I am obsessed with How how Did This Get Made. Jason Mansukis is my favorite person who's ever lived, which might be an overstatement, but also maybe not. Um, I I like Unqualified, the Anna Faris podcast. I like Reply All, another Gimlet podcast. Um, I really loved Mystery Show when it was on, but then sadly it was canceled. I really like Crybabies. There are others, but those are that's a good list for now. <laughs> I, I love the idea of you having a whole radio studio and like you know having people call in, and you're like, nope, next, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That would be fantastic. I'm trying to think what your what your show would be like if you had a show. If you had yeah, if you had unlimited money, what would what would your show be like? I've actually given this some thought. Don't worry about it. I've given this some thought. (laughs) Good. And it would be it would be called Melissa Explains It All, a play on Clarissa Explains It All, the popular show from the nineties. I love it. And it would be people who are experts explaining complicated things to me. And then I would have to see if I could understand them. So someone may be explaining to me computer science or 
like, or climate change. And then we would discuss it. And then if by the end I understand what they're talking about, that would be the purpose of the podcast. And then there could be like a little segment at the end where you actually put it in your own words and get it. That's the thought. That sounds great. I'm not sure we should publicize this. I think this is too good an idea to put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, Melissa, think about that. We can cut that out. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So, Melissa, tell us about something that you've changed your mind about um, within your time in the industry. I have changed my mind about nonfiction. Hmm. I was never a reader of nonfiction before I started in publishing. And even until very recently, I wasn't a reader of nonfiction because, as I said, I am... I am an escapist reader. I prefer to become fully enmeshed in what I'm reading because I don't want any reminder of what's going on in the outside world. It's it's sort of like a time away from reality. But since joining Stonesong even, I've realized that there's a whole world of nonfiction that can do that job for you and can bring you somewhere else and also teach you things at the same time, and also has a very relevant place in society. And maybe it's because I'm getting older and more thoughtful and and I'm more interested in what's actually happening in the world. I have found that nonfiction actually is really important and really enjoyable to read. What's some of your favorite nonfiction? Right now for book club and over the break, this is what I was reading, which is really grim. Um, I was reading The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, the book about the the young man from Newark who was brilliant, who then went to Yale, and everyone thought he was going to live this um, really successful life, and he he ended up being murdered when he was 30, and it was just so heartbreaking, and It was in the title. What happens to him is in the title. It's The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. And I thought that that was such an interesting publishing decision that they gave away the ending right there in the beginning Mm -hmm. so that the whole time you have this knowledge in the back of your head that this is going to happen to this person and how am I reading this and how am I so excited for his future when he's going to Yale but then knowing that he's going to die when he's so young. Wow. Yeah, it was a it was a hard book to read over New Year's, but still <laughs> very enjoyable as a piece of literature. I love that people in publishing often have book clubs too, because people are like, "Wait, aren't you too busy reading to read some more?" And it's like, "Oh, but that's different." <laughs> but, but some books just they're they're ripe for talking about, you know, having mm-hmm. really in depth conversations, and, and I don't know, I you know envision you guys having wine all the time around these grand tables, but <laughs> it is a different experience. Um, it's less grand tables because it's New York City, so <laughs> yeah. it's more like no room five or seven people fit into a tiny studio apartment where there's only actually room for three. <laughs> Yeah, at mine, there's always someone sitting on a big pillow on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, because like, I think our couches even are smaller in New York. Like we have to get the couches that can fit into like slightly smaller spaces. So you can maybe fit two and a half people. If they really like each other. If they like each other and they're tiny. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they're actually called apartment style couches. Yeah. So... We're, we're living life in miniature over here. <laughs> <laughs> it makes us all look giant. 
I like that, though. As someone who's 5'2", I appreciate tiny furniture. Yeah, New York City was designed for you in mind. Except for the subway. I sometimes have to get on my tiptoes to reach the pole to hold on. And I'm like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> other than that. Other than that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you guys, when I'm in New York, I stand there stupidly and I let the trains go past. And I let the other one go past because I'm afraid I'm going to hit the wrong train. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I mean, you'll just turn around and come back. And the fact that you're taking the subway at all is a testament to you being a brave traveler. Uh, That's absolutely. true. I was... It was worse. We, we, we were in France and um, we had a bunch of kids with us. And it was all about plant, like the story behind what happens if you lose a kid in France uh, in the subway system. Yikes. So, what does happen if you lose a kid in the subway well, system? This happened. And actually, the kid needs to get off of the next stop and wait there. And if anyone touches them, they need to scream, you are not my mama. Oh. <laughs> That's yeah. good advice just for life. That's a plan. You could always you. scream that. Um, so, Melissa, tell us about an aha moment that everything came together, a moment that it could only have happened in publishing. I was doing an auction over the summer for a middle grade author. And I had audio interest and I knew that I wanted to break out rights because if you give up all your rights to the publisher, you're leaving money on the table. And I knew it was going to be challenging because all the publishers are doing these audio grabs these days. And it was only after kind of hashing it out on the phone with the editor I really wanted that she finally agreed to, to the to breaking out rights for me. And I was sitting at a, a random coffee shop in the middle of Manhattan because I wasn't in the office that day. And I kind of looked at myself and looked at my computer and thought, wow, I'm actually making deals, doing business. And I'm untethered to a to an office. And I got a really good deal for my client. And I got what I wanted. and it And it didn't require ruining anyone's life. It, it wasn't nasty, but it was kind of a tough negotiation. And it was one of those moments that I I said to myself, you're doing everything you want to be doing. You have a great book that you just sold to the world. So the world gets to read it. You have the, the author is making the money that they should be making and you did it. And it was a, yeah, it was definitely a, a, a step back and say, this is what you really wanted to happen and it's happening moment. And I don't know if it could only happen in publishing. It probably could happen in another field where people also sell things and are really proud, mm -hmm. but it was a, an aha moment for me because that author looks to me like I'm a magician because her book that she had been writing in dark quarters for, for so many years is finally going to be a book and I helped it, that happen for her, or Yay. I made that happen for her. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So, so fun. Tell us when you, when you saw your first book on the shelf that you sold. It was actually pretty recently because for the first few years I was at the Aaron Priest Agency, I was not representing my own clients. So I only started taking on clients maybe 18 months ago, maybe a little more than that. And obviously publishing works on a pretty long delay. And the first book I saw on shelves was Doug the Pug in November, <laughs> which is an interesting pugs. book to see on shelves because it's not, it's 
it's not that full of words. It's mostly pictures. And it's an interesting publication process because it's publishing about a dog. But it was really magical because I got to see people on t- Doug on tour. Oh. And people got to meet Doug. And he ended up being a New York Times bestseller. Yay. So in terms of Thank you. In terms of first books, it was a pretty cool one, I think. That's awesome. I, I love I, I'm, I'm like, I'm like I, why didn't I think of that idea? It's so <laughs> cute. I want to go find it. I'm going to go look for it. Adorable. I highly recommend it. It's good for people of all ages. And <laughs> what was so cool about the Doug the Pug tour, and I, I got to go to two tour stops, New York and Nashville. And what was so cool is there were maybe 400 people online and they were all different, all on a line to see a dog. So Aww. kids, grown-ups, everyone. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like that where everyone had the same obsession. They were waiting in the cold to see a dog. <laughs> and other than that, they had pretty much nothing else in common across the country. So not just in New York and not just in L.A., but everywhere. It's just really fascinating and amazing yay um going back to what you were saying before about negotiation i think people kind of picture us as being a little more like shark tank than we actually are you know like people like yelling at each other and pounding fists on tables and trying to ruin each other's lives um i I, do you do you have any thoughts about how you know we're a little bit softer and kinder than that usually I think publishing of 2017 is this maybe a little bit the softer side of Sears in a good way. But um, there was probably a time 40 years ago where it was a little gruffer. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to say that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Plus, if you think about negotiation of a book contract or negotiation with an editor over an offer, this is the person with whom you are going to be working for the next 18 months at least. Yeah. So if you ruin things now, you're going to have a really awful experience for the life cycle of the book, especially if there happen to be more books. Let's say that person is editing your client's work for the next five books. Why would you want to make it unpleasant now? And yeah. yes, you want to get as much money and as, as great a deal as you possibly can. But there are ways to do that without ruining your reputation and without making the relationship unsavory. Yeah, definitely. It's so nice that our industry is based on relationships. I agree completely. What do you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? I'm going to say I wish I wish writers I think writers do know this, but sometimes maybe they forget because they're they're putting out their darlings for us, this is our job. So mm-hmm. publishing is a business and this is our career. So we need to take time away from our work and we're not going to be reading uh, client submissions or even um, queries all the time because we have to do our job and also enjoy our lives. And I think when authors sometimes meet us at conferences they get really nervous which is completely understandable pitching is a terrifying experience but we're all people doing a job working in a business and there's no need to put anyone on a pedestal and because at the end of the day the only thing that could happen is 
to topple off the pedestal when things don't go the way you want them to go. So think of everything the way you would your own job and treat the people in publishing the way you would treat those people you would see at work. It's true. It's kind of scary when, you know, someone's put you on some sort of pedestal because then the expectations are just so darn high. Exactly. It's, and it's not that your work, other people's work doesn't have value. It's more, I mean, the, the, stu- the stupid part of this job is that it's so subjective. I know we keep saying it, but it's still true that something has value to someone, but it might not be right for me. And, and then it might not be right for an editor or it might not be right for that person's publisher. And it's a wonder that any books get published at all because so many people have to like it before it, it could even get published. So putting someone or putting someone so much expectation on someone that you don't know and have no relationship with is a good way to fail. And to stress out everyone needlessly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so say a writer has an idea for a book and just for fun, let's say it's nonfiction, but they haven't started yet. What, what are their best steps to go from here to submitting their work? For a nonfiction proposal, it's a little bit different than fiction, as I'm, as everyone knows, because you don't have to write the whole book. You just need to write a proposal. That's not to say that writing a proposal is easy, but it's a lot fewer words than writing a whole fiction manuscript, which is great. So I think if a person has a great idea, well, first they should probably research to see if that idea has been written already. Let's say they've already done that. They should probably look up on the line what is in a nonfiction proposal and what is what generally goes in a nonfiction proposal, because that's a conversation I have pretty often with authors of nonfiction. What goes in a proposal? Oh, I need to know who my who my competition is. Oh, I need to know where this would fit in a, in a bookstore. Oh, I need to write a bio and an overview of the book. And once you kind of understand what would go in a proposal, you can start putting that together so that you can draft up a query and come up with a submission list for agents who represent that kind of nonfiction. And also that sort of teaches you what, what questions you'll be asked so you can start forming your work life around them. So you'll notice that people really care uh, where you have connections and how you're going to promote this. So then you can start making decisions to create the strongest proposal and create the strongest career to back that up. Um, Reading more nonfiction affected how you look at the nonfiction proposals? Yes, because I realized there is a lot more information that needs to go in a proposal Mm -hmm. than I think I had previously understood that it's a whole business plan whereas fiction can be like kind of a book of your soul and the author doesn't really need to come into the publishing deal with a sales mindset yet that can come a little bit later in nonfiction it all needs to be there in the beginning you need to have an avenue for sales you need to have an idea of who your market is and who your audience is and how you're going to reach them and that's all very important from the from the first yeah i agree i actually i i i'm not an expert but i do think even for fiction it's it's good to understand your market and from my social media background that's always a question that i have with every project that i do is where where is this going to go you know i think it's really important 
can you tell us something that isn't nearly as scary or hopeless as writer's fear it is? Probably querying. Oh, it's scary. I'm sure sure it's terrifying. I mean, I'm sure the, the actual process of sending out a query is a very scary experience because you don't know if you're going to get anything back from anyone, but it's not as hopeless as you think, because I think there's this idea out there and it probably has to do with the fact that the word slush sounds like a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like no one wants to walk when it's slushy. Slush, <laughs> slush is a nice, is another way of saying puddle and puddles are not great unless you're three years old and wearing a rain slicker, but it's actually a huge part of most literary agents' day or job to go through their queries so that you can find new material. Maybe the the most established and experienced agents are getting the majority of their list from referral. But for the rest of us, and m- most people who haven't been doing this for 25 years already, a lot of our list is coming from slush and coming from queries, and they're being read. So I know it seems like you're sending out a query into the void only to wither and die on the vine, but it's not actually like that. They're being read and there's a lid for every pot. It's really interesting too how people seem to think that there's the slush pile and then there's the good pile. I've had a lot of people call up and they're like, well, I just sent my query an hour ago. Okay, I just want to make sure that it doesn't end up in the slush. And then we have this very usually circular conversation of, well, but that is the slush. No, no, no. I don't want it to go in there. I want it to be read. It will be read. All of the slush is read. No, 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 no. (laughs) Have you ever had that happen? Uh, I've never had it happen because I don't think I've, because no author has called me to ask yet, but that makes perfect sense. Give it time. Give it time. (laughs) Because slush sounds like a bad thing. It sounds like what you would call the circular file or, or, it just it sounds like a euphemism for garbage, but that is not the case. No. No. But but what else would we call it? I almost feel like we should rebrand the slush pile. I don't know. It's like the possibility file. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. File. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz we need it too. Yeah, it's if we don't get new material we will have nothing to sell and we will die cold and alone starving in a, in the street somewhere because <laughs> selling books is our job <laughs> wait we do need some books to sell in order to be able to sell books <laughs> it's a big circle if we never read the queries we will never find any clients and we will never have any books to sell and then we will die hungry oh <laughs> That's so pitiful. I I would say for the writers out there that sometimes I critique a lot of queries for people. And I think like a query letter is a really difficult thing to write. And that sometimes if your query isn't working, it might not necessarily be your manuscript. It might just be that you need to tweak your query. So there is hope on all, you know, ways of looking at it. I actually say that a lot. I say that a lot that people are good at one and not at the other. It's such a different skill. It is a different skill. And and it's something like sometimes I 
do you think you need an outsider that knows your book to help you maybe help craft that a good you know a trusted writing partner or a critique partner or, or just someone that, that that you know that knows your work process it can be really helpful and also it seems like when you get to a point where if you're in an elevator and someone asks you what your book is about and you can describe it in a few sentences that shows that you're really clear on it and then you're probably in a mind frame that will help you make your query really really clear when you write about it I think people don't quite understand query sometimes in that they think that they're supposed to be full-blown synopsis synopses mm-hmm. or they're supposed to contain full-blown synopses and they're not there has to be a reason to read the book it's just supposed to make us want to read the book that's the only job of the query and i know that's really hard to accomplish but that's why you have to draft and draft and draft and revise and revise and keep trying when things aren't working and just because it's such a different skill i sometimes worry that I mean, say, for example, we were able to, for a month, pay for someone professional to write the query for every book in my inbox. Would I make completely different decisions? I Mm. might. Yeah. That's that's really scary, and it's completely unfair, but it seems like just presenting yourself as someone who understands their idea, presenting the idea in the best possible light, having some lovely sentences, perhaps with some varied punctuation and sentence rhythm – all of those things can make a book sound so much better than the way a lot of people go about it. And of course, you know, a brilliant query doesn't guarantee anything. It just means that we'll keep reading. But uh, I do wonder what would happen if that was something that was available to more writers. Well, flip side, there's always the first 10 pages, or at least for me, I always ask for the first 10 pages in my queries. Mm -hmm. So it has to be a really, really, really bad query for me not to get to those pages. (laughs) Like, it has to be end of days style query. And then <laughs> if if those pages are good, which are, are uh, bode well for the rest of the manuscript, then even if the query is only middle of the road, I'll still request because the pages are good. And that's what really matters in the end. Mm-hmm. What a hopeful place to end. That's a perfect <laughs> place. Like, <laughs> you know. Whoa! You have the 10 pages. Before we go, <laughs> Melissa, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your amazing class that we have available. Oh, yes. Oh, wonderful. It's about publishing law. So it goes through a little bit of intellectual property and it goes through a publishing contract, just giving you an idea of what your agent would be negotiating or what you would be negotiating if you were doing it on your own. Just giving a little bit of a hint as to parts of the law associated with publishing that you might want to keep in mind going forward. It, it, it's it's fun. It's accessible. It's a sort of thing that's really helpful if you'd like to know what you're signing, which everyone should. So that's available through the Manuscript Academy. We're very pleased to have it. I really enjoyed Thank it, you. Melissa. It was, it was Thank fabulous. you so much. Yeah. Who, who can make law fun, Melissa? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I wish I made law fun in law school. It didn't work out that way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one more question. Melissa, if you had 20% more time and an unlimited budget, what kind of project would you create? I would start my own tights brand. I know that's probably not the answer that you were looking for. (laughs) No, I love tights. Tights are the best. Tell Um, me about the tights. I would like to start a company called Not So Tights (laughs) or the woman who cares just a little bit less. It is the opposite of Spanx. And that would be what I would do with my 20% budget. I would just brand 
a new pair of tights that are slightly more comfortable for a woman who wakes up at 8 o'clock in the morning and doesn't get home until 10 o'clock at night and has to be wearing the same pair of tights all day. Yeah. Can they come in lots of colors and be like completely, you know, snag proof? Of course. Excellent. These are the ideal tights. They will come in every color Ooh. and they will not rip and they will be, they won't fall down in the middle of the day and they also won't make you feel like your stomach is getting mixed with your spleen. <laughs> That's always the worst with tights. It's like either they're comfortable and they fall down around your ankles or they're completely uncomfortable and you get that weird line. Why? <laughs> I don't know, but that's the the end result for not so tights. Oh. That's the goal. I'll see you on Shark Tank. <laughs> Sign me up for your uh, Kickstarter. <laughs> well, I can tell you're good at pitching because like I said, I'm sold. I'm in. I, I wish th- I wish there was a sound you could make that would mean like the the TM that implies that you're considering that a trademark like not so tight <laughs> ding <laughs> nobody Honestly, take that I'm giving it to the world because the light the likelihood of me making a tights brand is so low so I want someone to invent these tights so I can wear them oh it's like you're releasing the designs like Tesla <laughs> exactly to make the I'm world giving, a better place I'm giving the world a gift. Oh. And that gift is not so tights. Oh, and someone can wear the not so tights while driving a Tesla. I think that all sounds great. <laughs> yes, the ideal world. Yes, we can make it happen. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. We're so Thank happy you. to have you. If you liked what you heard, the Manuscript Academy podcast, you can certainly head on over to iTunes, hit subscribe. The more subscriptions that we get, the higher we're ranked and the more people we will be able to speak to. And if you'd like to know more about the Academy, including Melissa's amazing, fun, informative class, you can head over to manuscriptacademy.com slash welcome.